0: you're here with us. All right, so we're in chapter seven of 1 Corinthians. We're in our series, and last week we looked at chapter eight. We looked at using our freedom, Christian freedom, to build up other people, and today we're going to look at marriage and singleness. Some of you are probably tired of getting emails from me, from Claire, warnings of, uh, probably a heads up that you may not want to bring your young ones in here because we have some PG-13 content in the message. So I just want to say right now, we are going to cover some things that deal with marriage and singleness and those kinds of things. So I know some of you read that chapter in advance so you could know, hmm, should my kid be in here or not? And I, I want to comment on that. I know some parents are saying the culture is inundating our youth with messages all the time. So I want them to hear from me. Even if they're six years old, they're going to hear about sexuality, sex, these kinds of things. So I want them to hear from me. And so I want to respect though, there are some of you that would prefer and wait to have talks about sex and sexuality until later years. That is okay. There is room for both of those here at our Lord. So that's why we give a little bit of forewarning a funny story from last week, I mentioned last week that we were gonna look at 1 Corinthians 7 and a, uh, a middle schooler friend of ours grabbed the pew Bible and looked at 1 Corinthians 7 and began to read it, those 40 verses there. And he said, whoa, mom and dad, there's some interesting stuff in here. And so I thought that was a great way to introduce chapter seven. There's some interesting stuff in chapter seven and we're gonna explore it. Together, and before we dive into the text, I just want to say that we value the whole counsel of God given in Scripture. There is no skirting around certain things. Sometimes this is forty verses, so I am going to uh, limit discussion around certain things. We're not going to read the whole text, but we value the whole of Scripture from Genesis. Malachi, from Malachi to the book of Revelation, the whole Old Testament, the whole New Testament is the word of God and it has something to say to us. So this chapter, this morning, the Lord put it in Paul's letter for reason and it's gonna speak to us. I would say secondly that we value open, honest, transparent communication, don't we? And so this morning we're going to talk about some things very openly from the scriptures and from personal lives And then I would say, lastly here, that our culture and various forms of media are just vomiting their messages at us all the time. And I use that language on purpose. It is puke and it is coming at our minds and our hearts through our devices all the time. So the church better have a word. The church better have an alternative word that's anchored in Scripture and anchored in truth. And we can't stick our heads in the sand and wish that it goes away because it's not going away. So I'm calling us this morning in a sex-saturated culture to stand up and be the church. We have an opportunity to be the prophetic people that God's called us to be filled with light and truth and grace and love. And so with that in mind, I want us to look. You can open your Bible to 1 Corinthians seven. We're gonna talk openly today about three themes. Right? Marriage and singleness, yes, but there's something sandwiched between the two. The Apostle Paul has some teaching on divorce. So we're actually going to talk about marriage, divorce, and singleness. Now, Paul is not in this chapter developing a full-fledged theology of marriage and theology of singleness. You can't do that in 40 verses. That's where the whole counsel of God comes in. Paul is raising... And answering some questions. Really only a handful of things. So I just want to say right now, hear me. Disclaimer, we could nuance and qualify this all morning. We could have a series on chapter seven for weeks. So please give me some grace. I'm trying to shine the light, a flashlight, on particular things that I think are important at this moment in our church. And there's lots more that could be said or explained or qualified. So if I don't scratch where you're seeing something, I apologize for that. Limited time here. So my goal this morning is to just distill a few things to get us to think about this. And this letter we've mentioned is kind of prophetically infusing things into our church right now. As we become an army, the Lord's word is speaking to us, reminding us of things, envisioning us through scripture. So if you remember, over the past several weeks, we've been looking at this letter to Corinth. Paul planted a church in a crazy city. So much so that the word Corinthian meant all kinds of things. It was the equivalent of saying Amsterdam. You know the beer commercial where the guy's giving a toast and he goes, Amsterdam. Well, Corinth was the same thing. If you said Corinth or Corinthian, it was like saying Amsterdam or maybe Las Vegas. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And so this city was so notorious for its sexual behavior and party lifestyle and Paul chooses to plant a church right in the heart of that. And he says, we're invading Satan's territory. Show me where it's darkest. Show me where this stuff is going on, and the Lord is going to start a community there. And so I think there's something in that for us in the coming days. If you remember, we had to kind of move out of sequence here, excuse me. We had to move out of sequence, so we did chapter eight. This chapter seven follows on the heels of chapter six. And at the very end of chapter six, Paul says, Glorify God in your bodies. Church, you are called and empowered to glorify God in your body. And so this is the carryover of that. Chapter seven, Paul transitions and he says, I'm going to show you, church, in some very practical ways, how to glorify God in your body. Whether you're married, whether you've been divorced, whether you're single, you are called and empowered by grace to bring glory to your creator in your body. And so I want us to hear that this morning. And I I know we're gonna touch some nerves, but Paul says at the beginning of this letter, grace to you and peace from the Lord Jesus. Grace from God the Father and peace and so we want to remind ourselves, even chapter seven is saying grace to you. Grace to you, our lords. Grace to me. Grace to us in these different things. So let's look at chapter seven, verses one. I'm going to start, and here's what I'm going to do. Rather than reading the whole chapter, I'm going to try to read some bite-sized pieces, and then we'll make some comment on that, and then I'll give you some illustrations. Sound good? So at chapter 7, verse 1, I'm going to read through verse 4 here, and Paul says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, it is well for a man not to touch a woman. That's a quote that they actually gave to Paul, and he's going to comment about that. But because of cases of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal or marital rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does." And so this section right here, Paul is going to address several things, and one of them is that the Corinthians were saying, you know what, Paul, it is better that a man should not touch a woman. What in the world was the Corinthian church, what were they thinking? Well, if I've already let you know, the Corinthian culture was mad. Anything goes, even in their religious temples, there was sexual activity, there was prostitution. And so what was happening is they were swinging the other direction. The pendulum was swinging from this kind of self-gratification to self-denial. And so these Corinthians were getting saved and filled with the Holy Spirit and saying, how can we be sexual creatures? How can we be sexual beings? We have too much baggage and our culture is too crazy And so they were actually desiring to be celibate. And this was happening even within marriages. And some of us are going, huh, what? So we're putting on our thinking caps and going back to the first century and this actually was something that Paul was addressing. And he he was saying, no dice, church. (laughs) Corinthians, if you're married, you can't fast from sex we'll get into this in a moment, but he is going to say here something monumental here. He's saying that marriage is good, and he's saying to the husband and the wife that you have authority over one another's bodies. When's the last time you've thought about that, married people? You don't have authority over your own body. Your spouse does, and vice versa. And I want to make sure we understand what Paul is getting at here. He's calling a husband and wife to serve one another. N.T. Wright, one of my favorite Anglican theologians, says this. He says these verses right here, verses three and four, are striking, speaking of mutual equality between a husband and a wife. And many people, unfortunately, still think that Paul was a woman-hater, reinforcing male dominance. But a passage like this makes you pause and wonder. Paul mentions first the husband's obligation to the wife, then the wife's to the husband. Then Paul stresses that just as the wife doesn't have authority over her own body because the husband does, even so the husband doesn't have authority over his own body because his wife does. And T. Wright goes on to say, this was daring at the time and is challenging still. Working out what it means, listen to this, I think this is beautiful and thoughtful, working out what this means in the day-to-day and year-to-year rhythms and routines of family life, especially when one or both partners are under pressure at work or with children, is part of what the joy and discipline of married love is all about. So N.T. Wright is looking at that and he is talking about this mutuality and how challenging texts are like this. I want us to be challenged this morning. This is the word of God. This is speaking to us in some challenging ways. Now I do wanna say, again, this is one of my nuances here. All right, so I will go there. Um, This is not license for husbands to say your body's mine, babe. Amanda and I actually had friends in another state, not here, and the husband actually used this text to require of his wife daily sex every day. And when we heard that with them, we were troubled because that is not what Paul is getting at here. That husband needed to hear, hey, bro, your body belongs to her, too. And what Paul is talking about here is mutuality and mutual respect for one another. Now, you may need more sexual activity, and you guys can talk that out, but for you to point to this text and say, it's time for you to pay up. I've got marital rights, and I expect seven times a week. That is not what Paul is saying. So do you hear me on that? Right? We've got to make sure—and that can really go both ways. You know, sometimes we stereotype that it's the men or it's the husbands, but the truth of what Paul is saying here is that these verses are calling us to serve one another. Married people serve one another. In Mike Milner fashion, let me ask you, how's it going in this area, friends? Does it sound like Mike? Are you respecting one another? Is your aim to serve one another even in sex? Maybe this morning it's time to evaluate and refocus, rebuild this element within your marriage. There's grace, there's goodness, there's kindness. This is the word of God inviting us into experiencing the grace of God. Along with this, Paul says in seven five through nine, that we're called to seek God together as married couples. Let me read this beginning at verse five. I'm just gonna read a couple of verses here and listen to what Paul says. Do not deprive married couples one another except perhaps by agreement for a set time to devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This I say by way of concession, not of command. And what Paul's gonna do here is he's oftentimes he's going to say there's a direct word from Jesus in his teaching, and I'm referencing that. And so that is a command. If Jesus said it, we do it, no questions asked. There are other times where he searches the teachings of Jesus and he says, This is my opinion. There's no word from the Lord. And so this is kind of alternating in this text here. And so when he says that at the end, this is a way of concession not of command. It's him saying, this is my opinion, and I think it's a pretty good apostolic opinion. So let's look at what he's saying here about seeking God together. Again, this may uh, blow some of our minds, but in the first century church and even beyond that, people would abstain from sexual activity. Why? To fast and pray. They would actually fast from sexual activity, and again, I think if we look at this in its historical context, its cultural context, it makes more sense. Just think if you had come out of this kind of permeation of sexual activity, including the religious temples, the whole place was Amsterdam times ten. And so these couples were getting saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were devoting themselves to prayer and fasting for windows of time. And Paul says, that's what you do. You can't be celibate within a marriage. Now, again, I'm tempted to nuance here. Are there medical situations where one spouse is not sexually active? Of course. That's not what we're talking about. There are some marriages where for years... Maybe the entire marriage, there is a limit or restriction on sexual activity. That's not what we're talking about. What Paul is talking about is people who for a window of time are going to focus and say, Lord, our bodies for the next three days are going to be yours. We're going to fast and we're even going to fast from having sex. And then Paul says, come back together, friends, so that the enemy doesn't get a foothold between you. Paul's talking about this. I want to look at a flip side of this, though. Can I do that for a moment here? Paul is talking about depriving one another for healthy reasons so that you could fast or pray. And some people are saying, I'm out. I'm not doing that. That's okay. Grace to you. Paul is addressing this 2,000 years ago. There is another thing called punishing your partner where you freeze the other person out, you get your feelings hurt, and you say, no sex for you. And you ice your partner out, and sometimes it becomes a standoff. And so days might go by, weeks might go by, months might go by, because you're hurt. This word here says, don't do that. Why? Because, in a very practical way, if you are icing or freezing your partner out, what's going to happen? They're going to look for sexual satisfaction somewhere else. And Paul says it's the way we're wired. Satisfy one another. This is holy stuff, friends. This is the word of the Lord speaking into some of the most intimate places of our lives. If you're hurt, if your spouse has hurt you, work through it. Go to them and say, honey, I'm, I'm hurt here. I want you to hear me on this because if that doesn't happen, whether it's the man or the woman, it opens the door, fantasy settles in, all of a sudden pornography becomes alluring, satisfying yourself becomes more alluring. And so I think the word of the Lord to us is we're at war. We are at war, my friends. Your marriage is one of the things that the enemy hates. He looks at you, he looks at your marriage, and he says, how can I destroy it? And it usually starts in very subtle ways. And so the word of the Lord is for us to forgive each other and to satisfy each other. And then a wall of fire is constructed around our marriage, and the enemy can't touch us. I remember some friends of mine one time talked about affair-proofing your marriage. This is how you do it. And the grace of God is there, the kindness of God to help us do this. Paul goes on to say in verse seven, look at what he says in light of these kinds of things. What does Paul say at verse seven? Corinthians, I wish that all of you were as I myself am, a single person. But each has a particular gift from God. Notice he calls it a gift. The gift of marriage and the gift of singleness or celibacy. One having one kind and another a different kind. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is well for them to remain unmarried as I am. But if they are not practicing self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion or desire to be married and to be engaged sexually. So Paul begins to shift his emphasis here from marriage, some of the very practical teaching about marriage, serving one another, seeking God together, and he begins to transition to the unmarried believers at the church of Corinth. And we read this, and again, we've got to get inside of that first century church. Paul viewed his single life as a charisma, a gift from God. Now, I was thinking about this this week. We don't know why Paul was single. Two main theories out there over the last couple thousand years, and one is that his wife died, so he was a widower. That's one theory, but there's equal evidence that his wife may have left him, actually. He was in the Sanhedrin, so he was in a Jewish um, Association where you had to be married. So Paul could not have been in the Sanhedrin unless he were married. So at one point, Paul was married and his wife could have left him when he became a Christian. We're, we're just not sure, but we know in this text here that he's single, he's embracing it, and he's living his life in Christ to the fullest. Now, he says here, He's encouraging the unmarried and the widows, those whose spouses have died, to remain unmarried as he is. Now, this is going to make more sense in a minute, okay? So some of you are going, why? Why would he view that as a gift? Why would he tell the the widows to not get married? We'll come back to that in a moment, okay? So... We'll, we'll be back to that. But he, very practically, again, the Apostle Paul is super practical. If the fire of sexual desire is burning in you in a way that might lead to sex outside of marriage, then you should get married. We'll get back to that. So the second thing, we've looked at marriage. Let's look at divorce briefly because it's part of his teaching on marriage. So verses 10 through 16, I'm just going to read a few of these and make comment. How are we doing? We all right? Looking at marriage, that's a calling, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's work, and now he's going to look at divorce. Look at verse 10, I'm going to read 10 and 12 here. To the married I give this command, again, you hear that? I give this command, not I but the Lord, because he's referencing the teaching of Jesus in Mark 10 and Matthew 19, that the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does separate... Let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I and not the Lord, that if any believer has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So, related to divorce, what Paul is saying here is stay together. Two words stay together. What's the two words? Stay together. Now, are there exceptions? Yes. Again, that's why we need the whole counsel of Scripture, and we need 2,000 years of Christians meditating on Scripture and living into it. So let's look at this. Paul, I referenced this in Matthew 19. Jesus is teaching about divorce, and he says, don't divorce, except for you may leave your spouse if they've committed adultery. So that is one exception, one nuance there. But other than that, stay with your spouse. And I can sense the pain around this. Talked with lots of friends. Our own church has been wounded by this. So I understand this is difficult. And for those of you that have had a divorce, grace to you. For those who are in the process right now of going, for, going through a divorce, grace to you. Grace and mercy. Those of you who read texts like this and it rips your heart open, grace to you. Grace. Man, I am glad that God is not only the God of second and third and fourth and fifth and five hundredth chances. God never gives up on us. So I just want to say we're never out of reach of God's grace here. So Jesus qualifies this, right? Paul would have known that, adultery, you're free to leave your spouse. The second thing is abuse, something else that comes out of Christian ethical teaching. This text is not, beloved, saying you have to stay in an abusive relationship. Your spouse verbally and physically abuses you, you have to stay in that place. This is where the community helps one another. You discern what you're supposed to do in your marriage. This is why we have community discernment, and it's why we have therapists and professionals to work through things like that. So do you hear me on that? This is not a one-size-fits-all to every situation. Paul's heart, because it's the heart of the Lord, is stay married. If you marry someone, it's a covenant for life. Stay married. And in this convenient culture, we oftentimes have quick ejection, ejection seats. And the Lord says, stay married if you can. But in those situations where there's unfaithfulness and abuse, you can discern in the family of God how the Lord might lead you. So stay together. The next thing, look at this. This is stunning. Verses 13 through 16, listen to what Paul says. He's going to talk about sanctifying your family And if any woman has a husband, this is at verse 13 through 16, who is an unbeliever. He's again addressing these Corinthians. Many of them are getting saved and their spouses aren't. And he consents to live with her. She should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy through her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such a case, the brother or sister is not bound. It is to peace that God has called you. Wife, listen to this. For all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. And of course, Paul is not saying that salvifically, that you somehow have the power. No, it's through your life, they might see and experience the salvation of God. And so the second thing Paul is saying here, in addition to stay together, is sanctify your family. You have an opportunity to bring the holiness, the presence, the influence of God's grace and the power of your gospel into your home. N.T. Wright, again, says this. It's beautiful. Through the Christian partner, the unbeliever would be regularly within reach of God's love in Christ, shining through their life, and there is always the possibility, through God's grace and help, that the unbelieving partner may be won over. Further, the Christian parent makes the children holy. Presumably, this means that the children, in coming under the influence of one Christian parent, are within the sphere of God's love and the power of the gospel, not that they are automatically Christians. Amanda and I were talking this week. We have a dear friend who lived this text out. And her name is Kathleen Blue. I got permission from Kathleen to share. And she and I were talking about this. And she was in a marriage, a difficult marriage, for 35 years. Her husband was... Finally saved and baptized in 1997, he went to be with the Lord 15 years ago. But through Kathleen's faithfulness, prayers, endurance, and endurance, and endurance, and endurance, amen, she stayed with her husband, and it's impacted her four children. It's impacted her whole family because of Kathleen's faithfulness to God. Listen to what Kathleen told me this week. She said, because I stayed with my husband by the absolute grace of God, all my kids were magnificently set apart for God. These were the exact verses God gave me in the most difficult times. I heard from God and I stayed. So it may not always work out this way. Kathleen's story is beautiful and amazing, but it was grueling, very difficult. And again, this is not a one-size-fits-all. There are some people who stay in the marriage and they never see their spouse come to faith. So again, we're hearing from this and understanding all the nuance around it. Okay, let's end with this here. I wanna talk briefly about singleness. We've already broached it. Paul talks in verses 25 through 40 about the call, the gift of singleness. Just taking a few little extra minutes here because this is a chunk. Right? And we're going to have time at the end to respond because I think the Lord is doing some things inside of us. I know the Lord's been working on me this week through this, but the first thing that Paul says in these verses here, verses 25 through 28, singleness is preferable, but not required. Let's look at it very quickly. Look at verse 25 through 28. Now concerning virgins, and the word is parthenoi, it's those who are unmarried, I have no command of the Lord. Again, he can't point to a particular teaching of Jesus, but he says, I give my opinion as one who is by the Lord's mercy trustworthy. I think that in view of the impending crisis, what is that? It is well for you to remain as you are. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Then he says at verse 28, but if you marry, you do not sin. And if a virgin, an unmarried person marries, she does not sin. Yet those who marry will experience distress in this life. And I want to spare you of that. So what Paul is saying right here is singleness is preferable, but not required. He mentions this. What in the world is the impending crisis? This actually factors in to why singleness is preferable. Scholars think in 51 AD, there was a famine in the land. There wasn't enough bread. Corinth felt the pain of this. It was severe. It was serious. There was not enough food. And so Paul is looking at his context and he's saying, in view of this, if you can remain single, remain single. It looks like the Roman Empire is falling apart. The kingdom of God is coming. But if you can remain single, remain single. And then Paul of course is weaving into that not only the immediate crisis, but the ultimate crisis. Paul lived in light of the second coming of Jesus all the time. He knew that the kingdom of God had broken through and that Christ could come for his church at any time. So there's an immediate crisis and the ultimate crisis one day. So Paul is teaching them to live in view of the end eschatologically and practically. So those are the two reasons that singleness was preferable at his day. Now, there is some application that has to be done here, and we're not going to go into that in detail today. All I know is that Paul in Romans 7, I mean 1 Corinthians 7, says singleness is preferable. He also adds it's preferable because of undivided devotion to the Lord that a single person can have. And he says that in verses 32 and 34 and 35. And then he ends this magnificent chapter here, 36 through 40, saying, You are free to stay single or to marry. Man, this week spending time with this text was looking back over my 30 years and thinking of people who've lived the truth of these passages. And I couldn't help but think of Amanda and I have a dear friend, and many of you know Kay Zahasky. She lives. 1 Corinthians 7. She has undivided devotion to the Lord because of her singleness. And she is concerned about, not a spouse, but the things of the kingdom. She eats, breathes, sleeps the kingdom of God. And so she's in Turkey right now as a missionary. She's been there 14 years. And she shows the dignity and beauty of a single life before Christ. And I think I mentioned this, and I end with this, I mentioned, church, that in the coming days with this cultural issue called same-sex attraction, the church is going to experience an influx of single people. Are we ready? These words here become a prophetic word in 2019 and beyond for people who choose before God to live a single life a fasted lifestyle in the area of their sexuality. And I think we've got to accustom ourselves to that for us to rediscover how beautiful and amazing it is for someone to set themselves aside for the Lord, body, soul, and spirit so that the married, the divorced, the single, we can all be the family of God together. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your word Thank you, even for the the difficult, challenging things in your word. Thank you for the grace of God that comes to us through your word. We receive your love, your grace, your mercy today.